0: Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and a very good afternoon to you and welcome. It's Wednesday afternoon. It is uh, just past ten past two on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg. And we are... Talking things to do with Judaism 101.9 Yes, the basics of Judaism, hopefully to give you some insight into what is happening, what is about to happen um, What are the dates that are relevant at this time, what's coming up over this Shabbat As well as perhaps a little bit of a maverick, maybe irreverent if you can say such a word in terms of a rabbi A view of what's going on at this moment in this Crazy world of ours. Well, let's think first of all about today. Today is called Shushan Purim. Now, Shushan Purim is uh, otherwise known as the day after Purim, but it's more than the day after Purim because in fact, if you look into Jewish law, if you think about halacha and we take a look into the Talmud, it tells us something very, very significant about this day and the significance of this day. Well, Let's think, first of all, about what the day after Purim was and is and why it's called Shushan Purim. Well, if we took a careful look at the Megillah that we read and hopefully heard twice over Purim, once, of course, on uh, Monday evening and then again sometime during the day yesterday, we would have noticed that uh, the place called Shushan comes up quite often. It was the epicenter of the entire Purim story, it all emanated from this town, the city called Shushan. It was the world's capital city. It was the capital city of the Persian Empire under the rulership of Achashverosh, the king, and his right-hand man, Haman. And in that city, all the events of Purim actually took place. And it was from there that they spread, that they emanated um, throughout the kingdom, throughout all 127 countries that belonged to the empire of Persia all those thousands of years ago. And Haman, of course, made this terrible decree, and the decree was because Mordechai, who was a real um, big... Um, uh, Person in the city of Shushan. He was not only the head of the Jewish community as the head of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish court (coughs) court of law. But in addition to that, Mordechai had risen to fame and power within the king's cabinet. He was a cabinet minister. He was part of the king's government. And he then spent a lot of time both in the Jewish courts as well as in the palace courts, as in the court um, of the king of the entire known world. And it was this Mordechai who refused to bow down to the wicked Haman and, of course, uh, the events that unfolded um, with Esther, the queen, um, who was appointed in very, very interesting, fascinating circumstances, and Mordechai, her uncle, her cousin, some even say her husband, um, they managed to thwart this terrible, terrible plague, this terrible decree of Haman that was rubber-stamped and put into action by Ahasuerus, the king. And at the end of it all, The uh, Jewish people were given free reign to actually get rid of all of those who had ganged up against them. And, of course, being that it emanated from Shushan, it took them a lot longer to clear out all the anti-Semitism, the anti-Semites, and uh, the um, descendants of Amalek, which we're told that they were, from the city of Shushan, and the queen and Mordechai uh, requested from Achashverosh, that not only should they have the public holiday that was granted for the Jews to be able to celebrate their victory on the 14th of Adar, which was yesterday, but that in fact in the city of Shushan, that they should be able to celebrate on the 15th of Adar, and it therefore became known as Shushan Purim. Now our sages in the Talmud want to debate about where does that apply to today or where will it apply to in all the thousands of years that have stretched from the story of Purim right up until today. And the conclusion is that there were different um, yeah, customs of which day Purim was celebrated on and which day the Megillah was read on, depending on various different factors. There were some people who the Talmud understands would have to come from um, small villages. And if they're coming from those small villages, maybe they won't be in town at the time of the reading of the Megillah. So uh, an allowance was made originally for the Megillah to be read for them a little bit earlier on a prior visit to town when they came in for market days, perhaps a day or two before Purim. And then... When we look at the um, uh, sort of the rock-solid system, it was that everybody else would hear the Megillah on the 14th of Adar, as long as, of course, it wasn't a Shabbat, and the 14th of Adar was going to be the day on which Purim would occur and everybody would hear the Megillah. And, of course, our calendar is set up so that that is allowed for um, today um, as a matter of course. But in a city that is walled, A city that is walled, our sages teach us, um, the Megillah and all the customs of Purim are carried out on the day after. In other words, there has to be some place, somewhere that mirrors what the city of Shushan was all about, and there... The whole Chag, the whole festival of Purim is celebrated one day later, and that is today. And today is the day on which walled cities would celebrate Purim in keeping with and in memory of and in order to um, encourage and to understand that the 15th of Adar, the day of Shushan Purim, the day that we would call the day after our Purim here in Johannesburg or anywhere else around the world, that there should be a celebration called Purim in those places. They define a walled city. It had to be a city that had a wall around it from the time that Joshua conquered Israel. So it had to go all the way back. It was a not just a walled city because you could argue and say, well, you know, half of Johannesburg is a walled city and we've got walls around our properties and we've got walls all over the place. And unfortunately, those walls are there to keep people out. The idea, perhaps, of a walled city when it comes to the cities that we're talking about was in order to protect and keep people in and make sure that people were part and parcel of something very, very significant and special. And the conclusion of um, all our sages is that there is only one such city that... Um, has remained and that is called a world city by the definition issued by the Talmud, the Gemara, this, uh, the the Mishnah and so on. And that that world city is Jerusalem. And so if you were in Yerushalayim today, if you could possibly get there today, under those circumstances, under the circumstances of the world at the moment, um the um, fact is that Purim would be celebrated and is being celebrated in Yerushalayim, in the holy city of Jerusalem, with the reading of the Megillah, with the distribution of Mishloach Manot, with all of those things, in the city of Jerusalem. And it's only for the city of Jerusalem, not the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel was just like we were yesterday. And the one thing that Jerusalem has as a precious, precious celebration is this Shushan Purim, the day after Purim. What we do here in South Africa or anywhere else around the world is we remember this day as well by not saying any penitential prayers. We're not allowed to fast on a day like today, although you may want to after everything that you ate and drank over Purim, but no fasting today um, for anything negative or any other reason why a person may declare themselves in need of a fast day. And we are not entitled to make a hesped. We're not allowed to make eulogies on this day because it is a day of positive energy. It is a day of simcha. It is a day on which we still feel the power of Purim, which not only taught us that when it comes to big things that happen around the world, that God is in charge, but it also taught us the fact that When we adopt a positive attitude, when we're together and when we're basimcha, when we are happy, when we're joyous, when we are not in a panic mode that then our survival is guaranteed by the Almighty. And not only do we have to uh, remember that Hashem has wrought so many miracles and wonders on our behalf, but the story of Purim comes to tell us that sometimes the miracles need to be sought out, they need to be seen, and perhaps that is the underlying message of today's special celebration of Shushan Purim. I'll be back with you right after this. (laughs) Get back to basics with Judaism One Hundred and One with Rabbi Michael Katz. Let's uh, just quickly address the Shabbat that is coming up, Shabbat up ahead. Is One of those is As we have mentioned before On which there is a special Torah reading So not only do we have the regular Torah reading In the normal or ordinary sense of the words That there is one Parsha that follows after the other And I think I've told you before There are 53 Parshiot in the Torah 53 Gan Parshiot The numerical value of Gan is a garden A whole garden of Parshas Of Sedras that we read from week to week And of course we're up to Parshat Ki on the Shabbos and there is an additional Torah reading for the Shabbos as well. I told you a couple of weeks ago that two special Torah readings take place before Purim and two special Torah readings. In other words, additional Torah readings take place between Purim and Pesach. And here we have the first one of those two or the third of the three of the four special readings that take place in the whole system before Purim and Pesach. And this is called Parshat para, para, or para, para aduma, all about the red heifer. It is the beginning of the Parsha chukas that we read, and in it we have the whole description of a very, very not well understood, um, logical, rational kind of a mitzvah, the mitzvah of what is known as the red cow, the para aduma. It was in order to purify people from... Um, from from contamination It was in order to purify people Who'd come into contact with something That was sinister in their lives And was actually deadly They had come into contact with something called death And when they came into contact with death Or with something that represented death in some way In other words Not just actually being in the vicinity of a dead body But actually in a building where there was a dead body and so on People became Contaminated, And the contamination was not because there was some sort of a plague or some sort of a virus that uh, this contained, but because of a spiritual impurity. The spiritual impurity of death is the fact that we are perhaps cold, the fact that we are perhaps lifeless, the fact that we have lost our will to live or our energy or that we have feared or felt that there is not a God left in the world, God forbid, and therefore we think that we've got to sort out every single problem in and of, of ourselves and our, with using utilizing our own devices. Well, when we think about the concept of the pora aduma, the red, the red cow, the red heifer, this was something very, very weird and strange. A red cow had to be sought out. It had to be. Found to be absolutely red now, this is not just a cow that was sort of uh, a little of color, this was actually something that was a freak, a freak cow that was completely red. It was brought to the temple, it was checked, it was um, um, seen to be absolutely perfect for the description of what the red cow this red heifer had to be. It was then slaughtered, it was burnt, the ashes were then mixed into a potion, and it was that that was put on the, placed and sprinkled on the heads of those who had come into contact with death or the dead body, that they had the symptom of death. And somehow, spiritually, this rejuvenated them. It was the spiritual inoculation, the spiritual vaccination uh, that was needed to purify um, each and every person um, before they would be allowed to gain entry into the Beit HaMikdash, into the temple. And this was a system. And an inoculation and a spiritual um, um, uh, purification that people had to go through, that was beyond our understanding. It was beyond any rationale. It was something that even the greatest of the great minds that ever lived, such as King Solomon, has said that the reasons and the rationale behind it all actually eluded him. There were so many points of it that made it not understood and unable to be understood that um, we... For one, when we read it today, can only say this is something that is called a chok. It is a statute of the Almighty. It is something that is higher than us, that is more than we can actually comprehend and understand. And therefore, it is done and it's thought about of the fact that our purity or our impurity in a spiritual sense is also something that is completely and absolutely in the spiritual realms. And when it is in that spiritual realm, we know that there is so much of a physical nature that we need to do in our physical lives, but we've got to remember and never lose focus of the spirituality, of the spiritual side of things, of the godly side, and the godly power that lies behind them all. And it's on this Shabbat, before we get close to the Chag of Pesach, and the time that we're between the two great Chagei Geula, the two great festivals of redemption of Purim, which we just celebrated yesterday and are still in the throes of today with Shushan Purim, and Pesach, which is coming up, yes, in exactly a month from now. It's daunting. It is close. It's really, really nearby. And we've got to remember that in this space and in this time between the two, we should be focusing on the godliness behind everything. Sometimes with the story of Purim, it was hidden. We don't always see it. But as we get closer to Pesach, we realize that godliness becomes much more revealed in the miracles and the wonders that were carried out on behalf of the Jewish people in order to gain us that exodus from the terrible exile of uh, Egypt all those thousands of years ago. And so when we think about the state of our world today, and we think about what is going on in our world today, we're People are unfortunately caught up in panic mongering and in um, fear mongering and people seem to be so confused and unable to really see the literally uh, literally to see the wood from the trees. Perhaps we need to pause for a moment and think about um, what this all means and what it's all about from a spiritual point of view. Now, there are many who would address this perhaps correctly, perhaps incorrectly, would address this and say from a spiritual point of view, well, imagine the bad stuff that people must have done to deserve, that plagues should befall them. That's not really the way that we look at it from a Jewish point of view, because in a way, that is plain God. If I could tell you exactly why viruses occur or why plagues come about, um, maybe you would need to come and pray to me, and that's Just a Purim joke, because maybe you would be viewing or maybe I would be viewing myself as having all the answers and therefore being very godly. But perhaps we need to go back to um, a principled approach from a Torah point of view, from a Jewish point of view to unpack and to think about um, the systems and the uh, processes and the things that. We can do and that we should be doing We should be thinking perhaps At a time when the world has gone crazy with panic And where it seems that um, Even the leadership is Baffled as to what to do And perhaps are making draconian decisions um, Without them actually being And certainly not being based I don't think In a real Jewish uh, Soulful, spiritual uh, Torah uh, point of view So let's think about A few important Ideas, And certainly these are things that uh, are on my mind, on my chest, on my heart. Um, If anybody thinks differently, you're more than welcome to have a different opinion. But I think that when we go back to thinking about, um, from a Jewish point of view, how we should be approaching uh, worldwide seeming catastrophes, we need to just put a lid on the panic. And be a lot more circumspect in the way that we um, buy everything, that we read and everything that is fed to us. And that we perhaps become the fulfillment, a self-fulfilling prophecy, that we become the fulfillers of the doom and gloom. Um, rather than what we as Jews are supposed to be doing, which is providing upliftment and uh, Simcha. Remember, it is the month of Simcha, this month of Adar. Let's dare not forget that, and let's remember the miracles that that were wrought on behalf of our people when we thought that all was lost with the story of Purim, and we thought that all was lost with the story of Pesach. That's the period of time that we're in now, and these are the things, perhaps, that we should be focusing on. Let's take a... A little bit of a maverick view perhaps at two dimensions, at two aspects of what the world out there is telling us right now that is of so much utmost importance um, is the idea of washing hands. Well, got some good news for you. When the uh, terrible Black Plague came about in the 1400s in Europe, and yes, it was terrible and tragic and it wiped out millions of people across Europe. One of the things that uh, was raised – At the time was um, that it seemed that while um, non-Jewish children uh, were dying at a rapid rate, it seemed that the Jewish children weren't. And the question was why. And eventually the anti-Semites amongst them, the homons of the time, came up with the theory that this was a Jewish plot, that in fact the Jews had invented some sort of a way of destroying all the other nations of the world and, uh, you know, in their quest for power and so on, as uh, unfortunately anti-Semites often um, or want to think. They eventually discovered, much perhaps um, uh, to their surprise, that one of the main reasons why Jews were not suffering from these plagues to the same extent as everybody else was a simple thing called hand-washing. They were washing their hands. Their hands were being washed. And if you think about it, Torah demands that we wash our hands when we wake up in the morning, that we wash our hands when we come out of the bathroom. Yes, every time you come out of the bathroom, there's not only a hand-washing process, but there is also a bracha. There is a blessing that is made. And before we eat, we wash our hands. Now, if you think about the number of times that Jews are called upon to wash their hands, well, you may argue that, yes, it's only with water, not with hand sanitizer, which didn't exist in those days. But the concept of purifying, of washing, of cleanliness when it comes to eating, when it comes to waking up, when it comes to leaving a bathroom, all of those things are institutionalized parts of Judaism. And therefore, Jews should remember that Torah has many, many answers to many of the world's ills. And if we think about the fact that hand-washing is something that was instituted by our sages and instituted by Torah and it's something essential that you all do that we all do without even thinking about it. This is a very, very powerful message, I think, for each and every one of us to take account of at a time like this, to think about hand-washing and how important it is in our spiritual lives and how much it can achieve and accomplish from a physical point of view as well. Back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So this is a special call from uh, greater powers than I that uh, people should refrain from shaking hands. Well, you know that shaking hands traditionally was not actually a Jewish way of greeting. The idea of shaking hands and therefore, uh, as it's said, spreading possible diseases, bugs, etc., was not really Jewish, although today uh, people have accepted it or thought about it. uh, You know, if you don't shake hands when you're saying good Shabbos, you don't shake hands when somebody has a yortzite or whatever, you really are being rude to them. The fact of the matter is that I think that the idea of actually shaking a hand was from a sinister point of view where you had to check out and see that the other guy was not carrying a weapon, Um, and therefore it doesn't really come from Jewish ideas and ideals that uh, one should have to shake hands. So once again… The idea of a Jewish greeting doesn't need to involve shaking hands. You can say good shabbos without shaking hands. You can wish somebody, God forbid, long life on a yard site without shaking hands. You can wish the mazel tov without shaking hands. The idea of shaking a hand perhaps was not always regarded as the best way. And sometimes, maybe, if you think about it, going back to our concepts of the Duma and uh, tumah, impurity, sometimes the idea of shaking a hand is completely inappropriate. For instance, At a cemetery, the idea of shaking hands with mourners, where we're talking about um, perhaps even in a really, really sinister way of conveying um, the impurities from one to the other. Torah talks about that as well, and therefore one should refrain from that kind of touch. And there is nothing wrong with that. On the contrary, we're actually keeping the tenets of Judaism to the nth degree. If we think about it, I want to take this even a little bit further. And yes, remember it is Shushan Purim, but I'm not making fun, God forbid, of anything. But if you think about it, Torah has asked us, from a Jewish point of view, to refrain from touching people of the opposite sex. Uh, Yes, uh, kids at school will know about it, or even in the youth movements and so on, they talk about being blee, blee adayim, the idea of not touching. Now, yes, this might only apply to the opposite sex, but if you think about it clearly, Torah has had in place a way of at least reducing the physical contact, whether it's by a handshake or a hug or a kiss. It has reduced it by at least 50%, I imagine, Um, when we talk about the ratio of men to women, women to men, more or less half the population. um, You are not allowed. To actually touch or kiss or hug or embrace, even though it seems to be the more of the society that we um, do those things, they're not really the way that Torah wants us to behave. And so if we keep to some of these Torah principles, this isn't the answer. But very often, some of these things are there for reasons that go beyond our understanding. They don't only prevent, God forbid, the spread of disease, but they're actually there for a spiritual dignity Point of view, and they're there to preserve the spiritual um, space of it, of each and every individual, and they're there to protect us from spiritual infringements and infractions that we should be trying to avoid. And so, therefore, when we think about some of these measures that have been put in place, um, Torah has prescribed a lot of them in many, many ways, um, right up until now. One of the things that I think that perhaps we are not calling right about this whole story is the idea of the negativity that it's bringing into people's minds. Now, it is well known that when a person is upbeat and when they are happy and when they are in a positive frame of mind, that um, that is the best way or one of the best ways, one of the needed ingredients for immunity, and it's one of the needed ingredients for um, overcoming, God forbid, any illness that may befall you. And when we think about what is going on in the world today, people are panicking and people are becoming perhaps a little depressed about it, and people are thinking that there is no light at the end of the tunnel, and people are thinking that it's all doom and gloom. And there's not a way to try and fight any diseases not of a physical point of view and certainly not of a spiritual point of view. But we're told to be Basimcha. We've got to be joyous. We've got to be positive. We've got to be happy. We've got to have a positive outlook. We need to not be reckless. And we dare not be reckless. And you're not going to um, sneeze on uh, somebody who uh, who's sitting next to you. And you're not going to pass on um, a possible uh, difficulty or problem or issue or, um, or 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 sniffle that you may have. You're not going to do that. And of course you're not, because that's just common decency and it's common uh, common knowledge and general knowledge that everybody should have. But we dare not become panic-stricken and we dare not become caught up in this frenzy of uh, thinking that there isn't a God in the world and that we're going to be able to solve this all by our draconian measures that we're taking along the way. I'll be back with you right after this Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So we need to place our trust a little bit more in God. And we need to remember that there are things that happen in God's world that are beyond our ability and beyond our capability. And we cannot and we dare not think that we are replacing God in the ability to fight off uh, earthquakes or volcanoes or tsunamis or even these huge, huge viruses. And we need to remember that um, while we cannot really fathom or we don't really know what what the reason is that these um, events occur and why they address and attack certain people and not certain others, that's not for us to really go into or to debate. And it's certainly not for us to persecute those who may be in that position at all, but rather to try and assist and help and guide and fix. Our job is to be joyous, to be happy, to be positive. That's the time that we're in. And with adopting that kind of a stance and that kind of an attitude, and, of course, taking the various precautions that we need to take of hand-washing, of not... Um, uh, not being reckless of uh, not visiting uh, areas that, of course, are full of these uh, of these uh, terrible ailments and illnesses, we need to remember that ultimately our trust has to be placed much more in Hashem. We've got to put a lot more trust in God. It is fickle of us to actually start panicking to think that um, the world is uh, full of doom and gloom. That's certainly not a Jewish attitude, and it's certainly not one that we are or we should be um, adopting or be thinking about at all. Our job clearly needs to be that we're focused on being positive, that we're focused on simcha, on joy. If we have the opportunity to bring more simcha into the world, that is what we need to do. And yes, abiding by our Torah Regulations and restrictions And ensuring that we Do the things that our medical fraternity Tell us to do On a pure and good medical basis But panic? Definitely not Be depressed? Certainly not And um, ultimately, please God In these days, between one guula to the next, from one redemption Of Purim to the next To the coming redemption of Pesach We should see very, very soon the ultimate redemption with the coming of Mashiach, when we're promised that there'll be no more pain and suffering, there'll be no more illness in the world. All of these things will be done away with. And we've got to remember that ultimately it is only the almighty God who actually can and will put an end to all of these difficulties, all these painful occurrences and all of these sufferings of people everywhere. So while we say a prayer for those who may be, um, affected by this um, scourge, and while we think about those who may be and have suffered from it, we need we need to be careful that we don't destroy countries, cities, economies, um, people through uh, starvation. You know, people, God forbid, may die from starvation because um, the countries that they're in are going to be running out of money and not not having uh, people coming to visit, etc., etc., etc. We need to adopt a balanced, a sound and a solid Jewish view and to remember uh, for once and for all as Jews that there is a God in the world. And God Almighty will and does and please God will continue in every possible way to protect us and make sure that we are assured of not only a wonderful, wonderful time in the days up ahead, in the weeks up ahead, but certainly in the eons up ahead, with the coming of Mashiach. May he come speedily in our time. Look forward to being back with you soon on Judaism 101.9.